Solving Sacramento. This series has spent a fair amount of time with people who work in the nonprofit housing space. This week, approaches to a related set of challenges as we hear from two people who started their own for-profit development businesses. From Solving Sacramento, I'm Nick Bruner. This is Housing in the Capital. This series centers around a conversation between two people in the housing industry, the ups, the downs, sort of a microcosm of a big national conversation. And this week, pro-business, looking to seek a profit. What's that bring to mind? Perhaps it's the miserly Scrooge McDuck from A Christmas Carol, or perhaps the heroic world-traveling Scrooge McDuck from DuckTales, or perhaps something else entirely. I wouldn't know. I only think in binary duck examples. But I also learned quite a bit about the barriers to entry when you are a for-profit developer in this town, from the different regulations that you face to how you might not see a payday until a year or more after your job is complete. Who are these housing-developing, Sacramento-centric, non-duck developers? My name is John Vignocchi, and I am the founder and managing partner of a firm called Urban Capital. I work with my business partner, Chris Garner, and we focus on building new construction multifamily workforce housing units. I'm Katie Hanton, owner and principal of Vertical Pacific, specializing in civil engineering and real estate development. My main focus is infill development, similar to John, focusing on workforce housing and attainable housing units that'll better serve Sacramento and doing the site design to help make it a cohesive design process. Both Katie and John are transplants to the Sacramento region, so let's start by hearing about how they got here. I grew up in Santa Barbara, so kind of like NIMBY Central, and I grew up with a lot of housing insecurity as a kid, so this is a topic that has been lingering in the back of my mind, or this job has been uh, an idea that's been lingering in the back of my mind, so founding the company has been focusing on this, uh, you know, helping solve California's affordability crisis is uh, something near and dear to my heart. I went to school in San Luis Obispo, spent 10 years in San Francisco, another NIMBY Central, and moved to Sacramento in 2019. My wife was from here, saw all the good things that were happening, and wanted to um, get involved. I thought I would move back to to Seattle after college, but I already knew that I couldn't afford the housing prices there. (laughs) Um, Flew out to Sacramento for a job interview and probably spent a total of three hours here. But I drove through, I drove down P Street on the way home, going to the airport, And um, that's about it. I just drove down the one street and I felt like Midtown had a charm that resonated with me. And I just felt like that's where I should start my career. So I moved here in January 2015, started doing engineering projects, um, mostly on luxury housing, luxury townhomes, luxury uh, multifamily. (laughs) While I, I got to cut my teeth as a young designer on a lot of great projects, they were also projects that I would no way be able to afford to live in. Later moved to a larger firm doing subdivisions and that was kind of during the peak of COVID, working for a lot of big home builders, building homes that I also couldn't afford at that time. At a certain point, I just felt like that was unfulfilling (laughs) and spent a little bit of time working for an industrial developer to learn that side of the business. And that was great experience as well, but also somewhat unfulfilling. And so met you and your partner, Chris Garner, I think around that same time and we were talking about ideas on a parcel on 16th and E Street and talking about smaller attainable models. And I kind of felt like that's more the path I wanted to go in. So started my company around that same time and did the engineering design on that site and helped develop it alongside you guys and um, definitely made the right choice there. 
there is something very quixotic about uh, driving down the streets of Midtown and seeing all the trees and all the old homes. So I remember in coming back to Katie's early comment in 2009, uh, 2010, 2011, the first time I really spent time in Midtown. My wife grew up in, in Carmichael in the Burbs. And so when we met in 2006, I spent a lot of time out in the suburbs of Sacramento. And it wasn't until 2009 when we graduated that I really, we started going down to Zuda Yoga down in Midtown on 19th and O, I believe. And I was just like, what is this place? This is so funky and cool. Um, we did our engagement photos down, I think at the beat and a bunch of other places, tattoo shops. And it was just Midtown just had this really great energy. And um, it just seemed like this little gem. And uh, if you're living in San Francisco, I was like, this seat feels like a lot, like reminds me a lot of what I love about San Francisco. And um, fast forward 10 years, uh, or actually, I guess, fast forward to 2016, we bought a rental here, our first property, because, again, we couldn't afford something in San Francisco or didn't want to, to spend a million bucks on a two-bedroom, one-bath, 800-square-foot fixer-upper. So there's a charm here, and it doesn't surprise me that in COVID, when people had the freedom to you know leave their jobs or leave their daily commutes, it doesn't surprise me that a lot of them cho- chose Sacramento, because it's really a hidden gem. You drive down P Street or you drive down L Street or whatever stop and you look around and you're like, Hmm, maybe I was wrong. You know? So yeah, I love it here. It's funny. Katie had those same feelings. I did I just remember driving on 160 and seeing the skyline and feeling like, yeah, I want to help make an impact here. I feel like I can make an impact. I feel like I can help change the city skyline. I feel like there's so much underutilized land and this place is such a gem. It gets such a bad rap, but it's really a fantastic community. streamlining of our zoning processes. It's much easier to build in Sacramento than it is anywhere else in the state of California. That's something that we should be proud of. That being said, um, you know, Sacramento's issue is that we, you know, it takes capital to build uh, homes and it takes capital to build apartments. And uh, we are building a ton of apartments that are kind of naturally occurring affordable housing, even new class A properties out in the suburbs where the costs are cheaper. Um, so there is a bunch of affordable housing. It's not deed restricted, but it's definitely new housing supply. It is, you know, lower rents than what you see in Midtown. Um, so I think Sacramento has a ton of new housing supply that's been coming online. There's something like 4,000 units, I believe, in the pipeline right now in construction. Most of those are outside of the central city. But it comes down to capital. Like, to build more housing, you need more capital. The demand is there. Capital is not necessarily there. Certainly, the more growth that you have, the more capital that unlocks. You know, I think Sacramento kind of suffers from being in the Central Valley where we have a state that's extremely hostile to capital and hostile to businesses. That works against our favor. I know, you know, right now we're fundraising for a 130-unit multifamily project at the corners of 12th and E, and we just were reviewing all of our term sheets. And out of 55 parties that we went out to, 55 investment groups, we had one person provide us a term sheet. 60 to 70% of the people said, no, they're not doing business. And they called it geography and we drilled in deeper. It's they're really not investing in California. So when you scroll through and you see the perception issues, I mean, I think there's a massive perception issue. You see, obviously the, the tragedy that's happening on our streets with the unhoused, uh, you see the retail theft, you see the drug markets and the open air drug dens that are in, you know, beautiful cities like San Francisco and even in our city in Sacramento. 
that scares capital away. And what do you need to build housing? You need capital. And you can't just put water on a ground and grow a house. Um, so that is one of our limiting factors here is that if we had the capital base of a large city, we'd be able to to grow faster and build more housing supply, but it's kind of a chicken and the egg. How do you get to have that large capital base? We have to have a lot of growth and then that comes with its own set of challenges. So I'm not here to say that I'm some wise sage. <laughs> I try to take things really simple. Um, I think we can avoid it by streamlining and encouraging as much housing production as possible and letting the market kind of decide how to best allocate capital, whatever capital it can get to build as much housing as possible. I think politics has pitted traditional affordable housing against market rate housing for years. And the, the problem with that is it's, I think it's painting market rate housing in a bad light. Market rate housing doesn't have to mean luxury housing. It can. Like you said, we still need that. We need all types of housing so that people aren't getting pushed out of certain demographics aren't getting pushed out of housing that suits them best. But, you know, traditional affordable housing is typically targeting individuals that are making, you know, 50 percent or less of the area median income. So that's somewhere between, I think, 35 and 40 grand a year or less. And that's great. And we need that. We also need housing for people that are making, you know, 60 to 95 grand. That's the 80 percent to 120 percent area median income. Um, A lot of market rate developers now are pivoting to that demographic. They're building attainable workforce housing. We need both types of development to create diverse, inclusive communities where people from different tax brackets coexist in the same neighborhood on the same block. But there are policies that are kind of being floated around that are going to restrict a lot of the ability to do that. And some of those might be, you know, forcing private developers to include, you know, very low income units in their private development, which to me just shows a lack of understanding of of how private development really works. And it's just an example of, you know, government overreach that's really not going to help anyone. You know, I understand why people hate um, BlackRock right? Who <laughs> controls trillions of dollars and assets. I love them, and, but I understand why people hate them. And, you know, they're buying up swaths of single family homes all over the country and with cash and people, you know, I understand why people would be mm-hmm. upset about that. And I understand why they might even hate national home builders that are, you know, choosing to quote, build for rent, which, you know, it's, you're just taking, you know, valuable units off the market, you know, waiting it out, waiting out the storm for better market conditions to sell those homes. market for rental market, yeah. Right. And so that said, local developers here in Sacramento aren't even in the same galaxy as those types of of conglomerates, right? And so, you know, you and I are in our mid-30s. We don't have millions of dollars and we're not buying up properties left and right um, (laughs) with cash or making millions. And there's times where we may not see a paycheck for months or maybe even years and trying to get these projects online. And, you know, local developers are really important for our, our economy here and they're trying to build more housing. But as you touched on earlier, I think people don't understand what developers really do. Um, our job is essentially to sell Sacramento to outside capital. Um, and, you know, we're pitching Sacramento to people outside of the area to fund housing projects here. And we need that outside investment, as you talked about. But we're already, you know, local developers are battling against, you know, astronomical construction costs that still haven't come down since COVID, infrastructure fees, permitting fees. And the city's done a lot of good things too. But to add restrictive policies on top of that, you know, I think that there's this idea that you're going to 
push this on market rate developers. And, um, you know, the fact is that's not what's going to happen. You're not going to get a market rate project with some very low income housing. You're going to get maybe some very low income income housing with some luxury units on top of it because, you know, adding those units in requires that we raise rents on the other units um, to make our return thresholds for investors. And, you know, some people might respond to that and say, well, your investors should make less money. And, you know, you might even be right. But the reality is you can't force people to invest. <laughs> um, so that's not based in reality. And um, if they can't double their money in Sacramento, they're they're going to double their money in somewhere else like Austin or Atlanta. And that's that's a huge challenge. Some of the policies that are being floated around, I think, are just I understand the thought, but it's not it's not based in reality. Some of these policies that have been floated around, like inclusionary, <clears throat> what Katie's talking about with yeah, requiring market rate developers to build affordable units or pay a fee. It's really a, kind of a tough. It's a it's a tough policy. Uh, I think the mayor has recognized this. Um, you know, he wants to he wants an inclusionary policy. I think, but he wants to do it when it when it pencils. So the hard thing to know is when when do you know when it pencils? Like, because when you submit an entitlement, like you know, generally you want to know at that point when you submit your first plans that you get the government's approval. Yes, you can build this. Uh, when you submit for those entitlements, um, you want to know at that point what the requirements are going to be. Are you going to require me to build 10% or 15% um, low-income housing units in this project? I want to know then. There's not really a great leading indicator to understand when are the good times back and when can when can uh, development and ca- and capital markets and construction costs all align magically like like they did in you know the early 2010s. Uh, you know, 2010 to about 2018, where you can where you can actually force that policy on people and have it um, have the benefit of the policy outweigh the the cost of the policy. Um, so I think, yeah, I think this inclusionary idea is very dangerous. I think if you if you create policies that reduce the housing supply, like what Katie's talking about, I think that's a huge challenge. I think force uh, is a bad tool but it's a tool that government goes to often because it's one that it really understands well. Unfortunately, what it doesn't understand as well, especially in, I, I love politics, so I'll say especially in areas that are quote unquote more progressive than others or maybe more democratic, you know, they really don't understand how business works, unfortunately, and they don't understand how to partner with business. Um, we're not all evil, greedy people. Yes, we want to make a profit. That's not a bad thing. Everybody needs to make money to f- put put food on their table. And when you're a developer, you're putting everything on the line, your house, all of your assets. Um, you go for like months, years without getting paid. There's nothing certain about it. I mean, nonprofits make a lot of profit. That's uh, so and there's a lot of alignment between the nonprofit development world and the for-profit development world. Uh, I don't, I'm not trying to draw a wedge or create a wedge between the two worlds, but um, they have a unique set of challenges. They have a whole host of inefficiencies that they have to deal with that come with government financing and government funding that we don't necessarily need to to worry about. You know, with that, there are structural inefficiencies that that creates within organizations that we don't have. And so it's just a different mindset. They do amazing work. They do really hard work. It's really difficult to do what they do. They're doing great work with the tools that they have. 
but they would be doing even better work if they had better tools and better policymakers making that tools and frankly less bureaucracy. You have federal level, you have state level, you have county level, you have SHRA, which is like a county organization and then you have the city level and you're getting funding from all these different sources and they have all their little strings attached this is very cap or very very complex financing structures and they spend a lot of time fighting over resources you know there we have a lot of great affordable uh, traditional affordable developers here who um, hopefully you'll have some of them on and mm -hmm. they can talk more about their specific challenges but um, you know those funding pools are limited as well they're spending a lot of time uh, fighting, kind of eating each other, trying to get those those funds and anything with the government. You know, it's they don't make it easy. It's like their notice periods aren't always in alignment with what would make the most sense. And it's kind of like once you get funding, it's like go as fast as possible. And there's a lot of start stop and it's just a little clunkier. And so it's something that we need. As you said, we need we need affordable housing developments that are catering to people making 40 grand or less. Um, we also need developments that are catering to people making 60 to 95. And then we need luxury housing for people that don't want, you know, we don't want them to price those other income brackets out. So it's crazy. Like, yeah, you say we need people that for housing for people who make under 40 grand a year. But we, uh, if you look at some of these affordable housing developments that are traditionally financed, what we're paying for them to buy is like a Cadillac. And what they really need is a Honda. Mm -hmm. So you can help 10 people get Cadillacs or you can help 25 people get Hondas. Well, a Honda gets you to and from work. It's super reliable, very low cost, right? But that's the equivalent. That's the analogy of what we do with our housing policy. And it's batshit fucking crazy. And we're the capitalists that get thrown all the spears by these socialist crazy extremists <laughs> that we have to deal with in, in California. You know, we live in Texas, so I can't bag on Republicans. So... Uh, they have their own set of issues, but it's really frustrating because we're out here trying to do God's work, trying to build housing. I don't want to sound like a, like a jerk, but we're trying to build housing and who's throwing daggers at us all the time. You know, we're getting the daggers thrown at us and yet where's all the inefficiency? Well, not, not from us. A lot of the cost differentials. I mean, we're probably building units for all in costs under 250 grand a unit where not maybe not all, but some of the affordable housing developments that we've read about recently are building units at 600 plus, mm -hmm. you know, 600 K yeah. plus for a unit. A unit yeah. And part of that is when you take public dollars, you're tied to a lot of things like prevailing wage. And I'm not criticizing the idea of skilled tradesmen. Um, yes. Women. <laughs> yeah. And trades women, trades people. Yeah. Thank you, John. Yeah. But of course we believe all contractors should be paying their employees and giving them benefits and health care, um, and they should be paid accordingly. That's not what we're disagreeing about um, when it comes to prevailing wage, but prevailing wage adds, in some cases, you know, 30% to your project costs. And so that's not something that private developers can absorb without passing it on to the renters. And affordable housing developments can because they're taking public dollars, but look at the inefficiency there. You're paying twice as much per unit just because of things like that, where it just, we could build a lot more units faster and cheaper without some of those red tape items. Personal financial risk, regulatory barriers, investor needs. On the journey of being a developer, there is a lot to consider. And boy, you're going to get some opinions as housing in the capital continues. 
Support for Housing in the Capital comes from Univision 19 Sacramento, which serves the local Spanish-speaking community and is a member of the Solving Sacramento Journalism Collaborative. It's Housing in the Capital. I'm Nick Bruner. The conversation this week is between developers John Vignocchi and Katie Hanton. Katie's mentioned earlier that when a developer completes a job, the payday could be months away, a year, even more on occasion. For me, that sounded terrifying, and I was curious about how someone navigates that reality, and that's where we pick up this half of the podcast. Yeah, so John's had it worse than me, so I'll let him speak on this too, but... Um, Katie's bad. She actually has real <laughs> skills in development. She's a civil engineer, so... The engineering keeps me alive, but it's yeah. it's not uh, it's not sexy at all times. It's It can get a little stressful when you see the end of your own payroll all the time, right? And so, kind of back to the conversation on how local developers function, especially when you're getting started. Getting started in development is incredibly challenging because... You know, who's going to give you money when you don't have a track record yet? And they're not going to give you your development fee um, early on. They don't trust you yet. And so I I spent over a year on 16E. You spent even longer on that. And we didn't get a developer fee until we started construction. So that was a year and a half in for me and probably two and a half years for you. Yeah, we bought that. We went in a contract on that property in right. the early, like January 2021. And we broke around in August of 2023. And Katie was around for about, yeah, two-thirds of that. And in August of 2023, we finally got our first paycheck. It was a whopping 200 grand that we split between three people. Yeah. So if anybody's out here making the, property uh, wages, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you know. To some people, that might seem like a lot of money. But when you're talking two and a half years to make, I think, what, 66 grand each, you know, they, it's, and uh, you're guaranteeing your, your house against that. It doesn't always seem worth it, and that deters a lot of people from development. Who wants to go stake everything they've worked for, all the things that they own, your house, all of your assets, and guarantee a construction loan for a $7 million project to make you know, a total in the end, maybe 300 k split between three people for two and a half, three years of work? And um, to add to that, when you're new... Um, anyone that's going to help you finance it, anyone that's going to help you complete it, guarantee it, give you track record, they're all going to take a piece. And so any additional profit split that we, you know, might've made from maybe we built it for 7 million and sold it for 10 million on this first couple projects, we're probably not going to see any of that. Not trying to make people feel bad for developers. We chose this life and we love it, but it's a little savage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we weren't just getting started on, these are our first larger projects. We did a lot of two to four unit projects, which you basically don't make any money on just because unless you're your own GC and we, we were doing a lot of our own GC work, but we also have somebody with a license. We were paying somebody that was like more training wheels. You know, yeah, we had other projects going on, but we weren't making any money on those either. And they had similar kind of payback timelines. Uh, like we started our project, the grace at the same exact time. We bought those deals as a bundle deal. We still haven't seen really a dollar from that. We haven't broken ground. We're hoping to break ground in February. But um, yeah, you take $66,000 over two and a half years. I mean, you're making like $25,000 a year. I don't know many people in the labor world who would do that uh, yet. We could qualify you know. for yeah. very, very low income. Yeah, we could. You know what? I do like traditional affordable. Yeah. I, wanna, I take it back. Yeah. <laughs> I want to move into some of these units. Yes, myself. Because I'm, yeah. If you look at my tax returns, it's not, they're not pretty. Um, but luckily, you know, had a lot of savings and stuff built up and invest, took all that capital and invested it. But yeah, it's still, it's, I mean, we've, we've got families, we've got bills, 
you know, and it's hard to get started. So I think what we need are more rich developers because if you're a rich developer, uh, and I'm just going to go out there and say it, I mean, and especially if you're an old rich developer, you've done this, you've been kicked in the shins a lot, and it happens. People get wiped out. Satiri, I mean, he got wiped out in 2008, 2009, and he rebuilt everything from scratch. I respect the hell out of that. Satiri Colacatronis from SKK Development, he's done like two, over 2,000 units in the grid. He's been doing this for 40 years. He's a local developer. When you're a local developer and you're making making money here, you're taking that capital and you're generally reinvesting it right back into your neighborhood. And we want that. These people care about Sacramento. So if you've ever been to Pazzanote and uh, Ginger Elizabeth's old location, Saigon Alley, that's all Satiri's development right there. Um, that family has done an amazing uh, amount of good for, for the city. And uh, they've been through their ups and downs like anybody in this business. It's it's a brutal business. And if you're not carefully managing the 10,000 variables that are involved, you can easily get your ass handed to you. Everybody goes through their ups and downs in this business. And you don't want to get out ahead of your skis too much. And you want to try to be as conservative as possible. But um, you also want to push the envelope and get stuff built. I think Sacramento um, is lucky to have a lot of smaller local developers. Um, and lucky in the sense that they might be um, family-owned shops that mm -hmm. have been here for multiple generations. I heard Satiri talk about his early beginnings one time, and I think he he said that he drove through Sacramento before there was anything here mm -hmm. um, with his wife, and said they were going to move here, and she cried. Yeah, she's and crying. he said she said, "Where is everything?" And he <laughs> yeah. said, "I'm going to build it." Yeah, and he did. And so, uh, you know, I think he's delivered in the region probably maybe over you know, 13, 14,000 total units, which is awesome. But you think about someone that's been here for 40 years or so, right? That's like, doesn't seem like that much. And it's because of all these barriers. Um, it's awesome that he's delivered that many units, but you can kind of see how long it's going to take for just local developers to get, um, to get that done. There's not enough money just in Sacramento to build to the scale that we need to build. And so that's why attracting capital from outside is really important. That's how we have things like Doco and the arena and how we're going to, you know, may or may not have an MLS stadium at yeah, some point. Yeah. Right. Those it, are I mean, the things. Why we have Crocker. I mean, look, we walk in Crocker and whose name's on there. It's, um, you know, the Friedman family. And so when when these folks do well, they 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 invest their capital back into the city. And and that's not to knock out of out of town developers either. We want them coming like Anthem has made a tremendous impact on the city. We want to welcome these folks who want them investing in our city, making money in our city. That's good. You want to see more of that because that means that more people will come in, more people will build housing. And when you have that, you'll have more supply and rents won't go up as fast and maybe they'll even go down in, in cases. Um, but, you know, we're, as the, as the U.S. is like 3.2 million units short. Uh, so we have a deficit of 3.2 million and that's sprinkled around across all these jurisdictions and that needs to get fixed or else you're going to have a lot of pricing irregularities and, and challenges. Sacramento is a really old city, so we have aging infrastructure, and some of those impact fees are set to increase double, triple, in some cases tenfold, I think, actually, within the next several years that's something that we're going to have to bear the cost of and it's going to impact affordability. Um, you know, a solution for that that I've heard kind of being floated around is there's been whispers of creating um, EIFDs, which are enhanced uh, infrastructure financing districts 
EIFDs basically allow local governments, uh, cities, counties to leverage future property tax revenue to fund infrastructure projects, which is a great idea and something we need. I will say some of my fears around that are, again, Sacramento is the state capital. We have a lot of government buildings um, that don't pay property taxes. Um, We have a lot of hospitals. Certain hospitals don't always have to pay property taxes either, Mm -hmm. and affordable developments are also, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, subject to exemptions. And so, well, that's a great idea if we only have, um, if we if we continue to have vacant government buildings um, and restrict development to only affordable housing, um, I'm not sure how we're going to fund those EIFDs. So it's a great idea, but it's another challenge that we'll have to overcome. Yeah, infrastructure is definitely a key thing. And infrastructure and housing are are very related. I think the mayor's, uh, you know, the mayor, Mayor Steinberg has been pushing this housing bond measure. And uh, he's been saying, you know, yeah, people t- typically don't look at infrastructure as a housing thing, but it is. I mean, you need sewer pipes, you need water pipes. The SMUD infrastructure basically kind of takes care of itself. You know, Katie was just talking about solutions around infrastructure and some of the tools that are currently used with impact fees. That's challenging because anytime you increase the cost of housing, you're taking money out of the renter's pocket. You're not taking money out of the developer's pocket if it if the housing gets built at all. And so any of these policies, if you're going to increase costs, who are you taxing? You're taxing new housing supply predominantly. So we need to change that. So if we look at solutions, one way to change that would be a housing bond. So the mayor's proposed a housing bond. It, it, it was kind of a you know, DOA with the, with the voters, dead on arrival with the voters, unfortunately. They're in a bad mood. I think there's strong support for a property tax measure, a local funding measure for affordable housing. If it's crafted in the appropriate way, that's an important source of funding. I think there's naturally occurring affordable housing preservation that we should be looking at versus building a brand new Cadillac. Why aren't we out there buying used Hondas and preserving those existing class B, class C buildings that are out there and deed restricting them? Uh, If that's, that's, you get two to three times the level of benefit. You can help two to three times the number of people for the same dollar of public subsidy invested. That is huge. Uh, And because there's so many layers of bureaucracy, you know, the local politicians love focusing on what they can control and they don't look up or around. They need to look up and around and look up to their folks in the state, which are on our back freaking yard. And they need to talk to their friends at SHRA and they need to talk to their friends at the federal government to solve these issues. Um, I think we need to use these existing tools um, to do more affordable housing at lower costs. So tax credit reform, tax bonds, property tax abatements. We need to make this stuff easier. We also, and I am going to get skewered for this, but because I'm from Santa Barbara and I used to shit on Sacramento, now I love Sacramento, this like ego complex where I have to make sure Sacramento is the best version of itself because all my friends rip on me. Oh, you're living in, you know, now I don't really rip on me. Now, now I've proved them all wrong. But anything that I see as a roadblock to, to getting in the way of Sacramento's success, I have a tendency to kind of blow it up, maybe in a self-deprecating way. But SHRA, we need to reform SHRA. They're a monopoly. They're very challenging to work with. Nobody talks about it openly. They all talk about it behind their back, and I think that does them a disservice. They need to hear this feedback, but they're a very problematic institution, and they're very, um, they're very much they're they're a key piece of the puzzle that we cannot. It's very difficult to work around them, and they're very politically. They're they have strong political allies, and I'm probably the only developer in town that would actually get out and say that they need reform and they're basically a little monopoly and they act in monopolistic ways. And when you don't have competition, that doesn't benefit the consumer. Unfortunately, the consumers in this case are homeowners, renters, taxpayers, our community. 
And uh, they have a tough job. They have to balance the needs of all these various jurisdictions. They also have their own kind of trauma from redevelopment being taken away, redevelopment dollars. So I want to acknowledge that. And they do do a lot of work, but they could do a lot of good work, but they could be doing so much more work if, if there are some changes there. And they need, they need to address that. They need to look in the mirror. You know, something we didn't really talk about at all, which I think is just second nature to us now, is the attainable design, you know, affordable housing by design, which is rather than taking government subsidies, that's traditional tax credit type affordable housing. We're doing affordable housing that's privately financed because we are building um, units that are smaller. And we're seeing that shift to units that are smaller. We're seeing a lot of success with it. Um, most cities around the globe have adopted this, right? Smaller units, minimalism. Um, we're behind, but we're catching up. You know, I, I know Americans love our space and our big stuff, um, and we're known for overconsumption, but we don't need as much as we think we do. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, condo that. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're seeing the impact of, of minimalism and smaller, unit design um, in real time, you know, people don't want a 500 square foot studio with a pet wash station if it means it's going to cost them, you know, $2,000 a month to live there. They would rather live, they want to live in Midtown for 1600 bucks or less, right? And so even if it means they downsize to a 325 square foot studio, um, it's usually worth it. That's three or 400 bucks in their pocket a month that they can use to have a better quality of life. And smaller rental housing isn't meant to be permanent for them, right? It's a stepping stone. It's a way to save on rent for a down payment, which is one of the biggest, if not the biggest barriers to home ownership. Um, and so, you know, we're seeing, you know, 19th and J was a good example. That was kind of one of the first really, you know, micro unit projects that had units as small as 225 square feet. Um, they did well. They're still leased up. Um, the you Julie know, and Mark. Yeah, did, yeah, yeah. The, the kind, kind project, West yeah. Sac. They Julie Young and Mark Friedman for those yep. listening at home. Urban Elements and uh, yeah. Fulcrum. They they've got um, you know their West Sac property. I think was a hundred percent leased in like two months, and they've got rents that are fourteen hundred bucks or less, and somewhere around that three hundred to maybe three fifty square foot uh, unit. And so we're seeing design with attainable rental prices in mind. Um, you know, makes me optimistic for, for people, makes, you know, people should be able to live in Sacramento. Entry-level workers should be able to live in downtown, shouldn't be restricted to just high-income earners. So we need that socioeconomic diversity in our neighborhoods. If this conversation piqued your interest, be sure to stay subscribed for more. Also, weigh in. Man, oh man, we want to hear your housing questions, your comments, when was the last time you waited over a year for a paycheck? Shoot us an email, info at solvingsacramento.org. At our website, you'll find articles around housing in the city by Solving Sacramento and our journalism partners like Outward, Sacramento News and Review, Russian American Media, Sacramento Business Journal, Cap Radio, Univision 19, and the Sacramento Observer. Solving Sacramento's I Don't Know How She Does It But She Does project manager is Sina Christian. Our project editor, Kat Graziosi. This episode was recorded, produced, and hosted by me, Nick Bruner. And our theme music is produced and performed by Lillian Francis. Doing all cool things, all the cool time, all at her cool website, 
lillianfrancismusic.com. Next week, it's the last episode in Series 1 of Housing in the Capital. Stay subscribed. We'll see you then. This podcast is supported by funding from the Solutions Journalism Network.